Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Doctors and Dollars podcast. I'm your host, Nate Crannell. I am joined today by my guest, Dr. Raman Rafi. Dr. Rafi is a graduate of UCLA and the University of California, Irvine School of Medicine. He is a father and a husband who has spent much of his career focused on home health care and proving, while being a top 1% ACO, that primary care is the in the home is a more cost-effective model of care. A native of Los Angeles, Dr. Rafi now resides in Michigan, where he splits his time between being a hospice director, a physician, and a strategic advisor in the home healthcare space. Welcome, Dr. Rafi. How are you? Good morning. Good morning, Nate. Thank you very much. Thank you for the warm introduction. Happy to be here. It's awesome. Uh, what's going well today for you? Uh, it's going well. It's a uh, it's a beautiful day. The weather's unseasonably warm thanks to global warming here in Michigan. So uh, I can't complain. Unseasonably warm. Well, uh, one thing I do know about you, uh, you grew up in L.A. So, yep. so yep, I, tell me. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your journey as, as a kid growing up in L.A. and, and then moving into healthcare. And I was going to say, you know, being in the snowy winters of Michigan, but uh, right. it, it sounds like being in the unseasonably warm uh, fall of Michigan. Tell me about that. So my family immigrated to America in 1980, and I grew up in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a major portal of immigrants into the country. And uh, I, I grew up in a, a section of L.A. that is known for having a lot of people of my back, background, which is uh, being Persian, which is Iranian, and particularly Jewish. And uh, I went to high school. And I was fortunate enough to get into UCLA, which was my number one choice. And I enjoyed living in the 70 degrees weather year round. I used to sleep at night with the windows open. And I used to uh, be curious as to why it was always so crowded there. <laughs> and um, cost of living in L.A. was just crazy and it just kept going higher. And one of my motivations uh, for going to medical school, besides doing something I could enjoy doing, so I could afford to live in California. So um, like a lot of people, like two, three quarters of my classmates, I didn't get into medical school the first time I applied. I got on my second attempt and I was fortunate I got into my number one choice at UC Irvine. And UC Irvine is just a, a true gem. I mean, I was very fortunate to go to medical school in what is called the American Riviera. Uh, Irvine is nestled in Orange County, between Laguna Beach, Laguna Niguel, it's just, uh, it's called the American Riviera because it's beautiful and once again, 70 degrees weather year round. And uh, I loved my time in medical school. For me, it was the first time I got to live on my own. Um, I think most of my med school classmates had lived on their own during college. Some had not. Some of them, like me, mostly, the, I think other immigrants had lived at home during college. And when they went to medical school, it was the first time they lived on their own. Um, I did pretty well in medical school. Um, I was elected to a lot of leadership positions. I was class president. And um, I got along with everybody um, in my class, in my school. And I initially applied, actually, to get into anesthesia because um, it's it's a, it's a field where you don't have to open up your own office and um, it affords a, a good lifestyle in, in the very expensive Southern California. And in my class of 92, 
actually 15 people went into anesthesia, which was a school record. Oh, wow. So um, this, despite being class president and, and getting along with everybody, I did not get a residency in anesthesia in California. So that was a first blow to me. That was life doesn't go the way you plan it to be despite all your efforts. During my time in medical school, uh, my dad, who had been a dentist, got diagnosed with Parkinson's and he never really worked. He had struggled for about um, 10 years to get his license. My brother actually became a dentist first and helped my dad get his license. And he finally got his license after a 10 year struggle. And two years after he got his license, he got Parkinson's. So he never really worked. Oh and gosh. I use that as my motivation for going into primary care because I really experienced firsthand how having an illness in the family affects other family members, the children, the financial situation of the family. Um, and, and I just thought, who better than the son of a dentist that couldn't practice to become a doctor? So... Um, I basically went to the opposite end of the country. I did my internship in Massachusetts. I went to a small town called Pittsfield. And uh, I went from a city of over 10 million people to a city of 10,000 people. And ironically enough, the residency program director was from Los Angeles. He had done his residency in Cedar sinai and had worked there. And I think he hired the hustle bustle of the big city and wanted to uh, start a family, so he moved to Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Well, that was in 2003, and um, that was just when EMRs were starting to populate, and it was a very, very painful situation with the hospital EMR system. I remember we would get an admission. I would spend, you know, 30 minutes to see the patient, and then it would literally take me over two hours or three hours to put the orders in the computer because the interface was so unfriendly for sure. And, and, um, the program went well, I did pretty well in the program and they offered me a three-year position, but I really felt I could have done better than that program. So I left that program and, um, I ended up getting a second year position later on in family medicine in Ohio. And that was uh, in Columbus, Ohio, at a medical center called Grant. And it's a level one trauma center in Columbus, Ohio. So if the president ever gets shot while in Columbus, they don't go to OSU. They go to Grant Medical Center. Nice. And <laughs> the hospital functioned very well. We were the only residents in this tremendous, ginormous hospital. So we were kind of like the ones that ran the whole place. And things ran a bit more smoothly. Um, I remember one night while I was on call, I was doing an admission and um, I had a patient who was being admitted with congestive heart failure. And during my internship in Massachusetts, I had learned to put uh, these patients, the ones that were critically ill on like, let's say a LASIK strip, which is a diuretic instead of giving it pill or IV, just a continuous IV drip. So it's, it's a high level of treatment. I suggested that I remember one night to the attending I worked with, and the attending above me was double board certified in internal medicine and family medicine. And she had been attending for years and she was not comfortable doing it. And I was comfortable doing it as a second year resident. And that's when it really became clear to me that as an adult learner, you got to know when you make your own decisions. Mm -hmm. And 
subsequently, um, I left that program. I had enough training. I got my Michigan license and I started working for a company making house calls. Um, the company was actually a pretty small mom and pop company and it grew larger and larger and larger. And um, we were still initially on paper charts and uh, then EMRs came out, which was kind of a rushed process and was a very much a botched process by the entire healthcare system. But anyways, the Medicare was interested in trying out different reimbursement models. And that's when ACOs came out, which are accountable care organizations. And the first year we did the ACO, we partnered up with the local hospital. And all the savings that we saved Medicare, the local hospital said, we're going to keep all the savings because we had we did the administrative work. So oh, the geez. owner of, yeah, that's, that's the politics of how a business works. So the owner of the ACO said, you know what, of the, of the, of the house call group said, you know what, we're going to make our own ACO. So we left the hospital and the house call practice ended up becoming its own ACO. We had offices in about eight states, about 200 doctors. And basically we kept what they don't explain to you in medical school or residency is that 8% of Medicare's population cost Medicare 80% of their budget. So the oh, healthy say, say that one more time. Eight yeah, percent of so the people within Medicare. Per, that's right. Eight percent of Medicare's population cost Medicare eighty percent of their budget. So the wow. healthy ninety percent of the population that's in Medicare actually only eats up about ten percent of Medicare's budget. So for Medicare to truly be viable, they gotta treat that eight percent in a lot more cost-effective way. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what our house call practice did, did because we treated people in the home and we kept them out of the hospital. And each day in the hospital is about $1,000 a day, uh, whereas each visit in the home is about $100 a visit. So even if I was to make two or three visits and keep them out of the hospital, the $300 is far less than $1,000 for one day in the hospital. So basically, the ACO proved to Medicare that it's more cost-effective to provide care in the home. And in great part, that's how the hospital model of care came to fruition. The guy who owned it in 2014, an insurance company, very healthy enough years. And um, in 2019, Medicare passed a waiver allowing all Medicare recipients to get a visiting doctor in the home. Before that, you had to be home bound. So the insurance company's business plan was to basically open up offices throughout the entire country and they could basically service all Medicare patients uh, because now basically everybody can get a visiting doctor. But as, as you know, in 2020, COVID came and COVID really just really changed things up. Because we were owned by this um, large insurance entity, we were able to pivot seamlessly to doing telemedicine. And um, we did that for, a couple of you know, COVID going on, the insurance company didn't see the long-term plan. They knew that they were losing money every year and they didn't want to keep on that track. So the insurance company actually divested from owning the house call company and yet another private equity group came in and bought that house call company for pennies on the dollar. And that's kind of when I left the company, things getting for the worst. 
and um, the leadership was changing. But what I did is during COVID is I, I got my MPA and I got certified in AI and medicine. And nationally, there's less than a thousand physicians who are certified in AI and medicine. And I try to build on my experience in becoming an expert on the hospital model of care uh, for companies out there that utilize that model of care. And one of the companies that utilize that are, are companies that provide remote patient monitoring, which is called RPM. So I, I advise a couple of RPM companies. Um, I am back to doing clinical medicine. Um, and I'm also a hospice director. I, I do that on the side um, as well. So I stay clinically active. But as, as time goes on, I'm, I'm trying to build up my own consulting business as becoming more of a consultant in this niche of the hospital at home and, and utilizing my education in AI and medicine. So that, that's where I'm at today. That's awesome. Where do you see, um, I mean, I have a bunch of questions. So thank you for sharing all that because that was a, a, a great peek into uh, a look into your journey, I guess you could say. So uh, I, have a, I have a bunch of questions that kind of came up as you were talking there, but I want to stick on the, the most recent topic and then we'll, I want to kind of work back with you. But uh, sure. you mentioned being a strategic advisor. Uh, that can mean a lot of things, right? Depending on the industry that you're in. Uh, you've held that title at, at several companies, right? Even including those in healthcare uh, and those even with artificial intelligence. Like where do you right. see or how do you see AI becoming a key tool to be used by physicians in healthcare? I will never replace physicians. It's a mm -hmm. misnomer. It's misinformation out there. Some physicians think that AI will replace physicians. That will never happen. AI will ultimately augment what a physician's job is, make their workflow smoother and easier, and hopefully improve their, their workflow. The, there is every aspect of healthcare can be affected from by AI, from billing to revenue cycle management to hospital procurement, hospital um, sources management, billing, um, but the, the fields of medicine that are going to be affected the most are going to be the fields that are image oriented. So radiology, mm. pathology, these fields are being affected today and not for the worse, but for the better, because AI engines are being taught to view all these films. And when a radiologist comes in in the morning, they have, let's say, a thousand films to view. Well, if the AI engine has already viewed them overnight, they're going to point out the ones that are concerning to them to the top of the queue in the morning. So those are the, going to get first viewed. And ultimately, it's going to be read by a radiologist. And there are many times, ultimately, people are people and people make mistakes that the AI will make up and pick up um, points on an imaging file that a radiologist may miss. In pathology, it's being done. There's a national shortage of pathologists, and it takes over 10 years for somebody to become a pathologist. Uh, if a patient is in the operating room, and the surgeon takes a tissue sample. Usually, they would send it off to the pathologist. They'd have to wait two hours to get the results back to see if they have clear margins. Today, there is a machine that goes in the operating room, and I believe Mount Sinai and a couple other health systems have it, where you put the tissue in the machine, and in less than five minutes, the machine tells them if they have clear margins or not. So the machine is doing 
the job of the pathologist. So it's just expediting the process. And I really don't think it's eliminating anybody's job. It's just augmenting a physician's job. What it has done is it's created actually a lot of new roles. Now all healthcare systems have CMIOs, which is a chief medical informatics officer. Some have a chief AI officer because AI ultimately has to be tailored to each hospital, has to be tailored to each department in the hospital. So you can't have a one size fits all solution. So each hospital has to develop its own AI solutions. And right now, Mayo Clinic has partnered with Google. They're doing tremendous work. I believe Duke University Medical Center has partnered with Microsoft Azure, and they're doing um, partnerships where they're trying to implement AI software to make things more smoothly. And, and ultimately, these are going to be um, the examples that are going to lead the way for the whole country. That's crazy. Well, and the there, it sounds like there's positive impacts and, and kind of negative impacts, depending on what type of physician you are. You had mentioned, um, you know, wanting to be an anesthesiologist, couldn't do that. You mentioned a pathologist has 10 extra years, it sounds like, to, to get into that uh, route. But not long into your attending career, you became a medical director at a hospice center. What do you think right. pulled you into the world of helping those that are near the end of their days? So when I was making house calls, a lot of the patients that we see were chronically ill. And I would very openly uh, talk about families, about what their long-term goals were, what their end-stage goals are, and talk about death very openly. And very few physicians would do that. Very few physicians are comfortable to do that. Uh, we get no training for that in medical school, no training for that in residency. So it's kind of like you got to take it on yourself to do things like many things in life. And the medical director of the house call company saw that I was consistently taking the lead and having these conversations. So she promoted me to being a hospice director in the house call company. And the house call company, like I said, had offices in eight States. They had about 20 offices and out of 20 offices, my office was the best performing one in the whole country. So they actually gave me a second office. I was the medical director of also the one in Ann Arbor, as well as the one in, in Metro Detroit. And I, I was able to um, have my census appropriate. You know, you get dinged if you have people on hospice too long by, by Medicare. And um, we were able to predict people's mortality very accurately. And and it just, it just kept growing. I, I ended up as a medical director of a hospice, you're a team leader. And given my experience as a class president, my other leadership positions, it was a very natural position for me to take and lead the team. I, I enjoyed it. It was a very um, multi um, um, different services. Like there was nurses, chaplains, social workers on there. And it was a diverse uh, panel of people that I would lead. And uh, even though I was a leader, I kept it like a, as a flat level where I felt I invited everybody to talk and I created a space of comfort and safe space. And I think it allowed the nurses to perform very well. And that's one of the reasons that the teams I led did did very well, because the, the team workers ultimately felt it was a safe space. And that's something that's very important in the culture of any organization. A leader has to create a safe space where the workers can ask questions, 
Um, they can question authority. They can question how things are done and why things are done the way they are. When I went through medical school and residency, that really was frowned upon. If you ask questions, the answer was, this is just the way we always do it. That's just the way it is. And it's just not going to continue to fly going forward in 2023. There's a shortage of physicians. A lot of U.S. graduates that come out don't want to do a residency because of the uh, moral injury. And it's just a very toxic environment. And if the U.S. is truly going to build a stronger work um, population, they have to be compassionate to their healthcare workers, not just the doctors, but the nurses as well. Yeah, I mean, leadership in, in any type of in industry is is super important. And it sounds like you've uh, you progressed a movement within the leadership within healthcare of um, you got to be able to to be open and allow others to talk and and be able to be adaptive. Uh, and a lot of times you'll see great companies who have a great product, but they have poor leadership just fail. That's right. Right. And and unfortunately, that's, right. that's it, it's not the you know, everyone be like, oh, what happened to that one thing? It's like, ah. Uh, they went out of business. Like, what? Oh, I love that product. It was awesome. Well, leadership, you know, kind of took them down the drain. So um, I, I commend you for, yeah, for right. focusing not only on, you know, patients in, in the hospice space or, um, you know, patients in, in any hospital that you're working in, but also being focused on the leadership and the staff that's there and making sure that they're having a great experience, because that's that's honestly part of where some of the success of those places come from. Hey everyone, I wanted to take a moment to talk about what I do outside of being the host of the Doctors and Dollars podcast. I'm the CFO of Grand Vision Capital Group. At Grand Vision, we work with high-income earners who make a great living but still can't quite break through that true wealth ceiling. We utilize strategically chosen investments tailored for high-income earners. The question always at the forefront of our minds is, why wait for retirement to finally live when you can implement an investment strategy that will impact your life today? To be honest, most of the people we work with never even knew these options existed because their financial planner doesn't have access to these exclusive investments. So if you're ready to finally turn your high income into real wealth, visit our website, www.grandvision.co and hit the take action button in the top right corner to schedule some time with me. Or even better, connect, follow me on any of my social media accounts, shoot me a message. Now back to the show. From That's right. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. One thing you mentioned, and it, I think it kind of caught me off guard. Uh, you said that Medicare dings, dings the facility for having someone in hospice too long. Did I hear that correctly? So every time a physician certifies a patient for hospice, the physician is saying, I think this patient is in their last six months of life. Mm -hmm. So the truth is nobody can predict mortality, but if you're still on hospice two years later, that means four times the physician has said, I think this patient's in the last six months of life. And two years later, that's a big red flag that this patient is still alive. Mm -hmm. So even if patients are on hospice after six months, it creates, it creates flags. So every hospice has some people that are on hospice for over six months. But if you have too many people that are on for over a year or two years, you become an outlier and you become a target for an audit by Medicare and, and ultimately, you want to try to avoid that. Gotcha. Yeah. One of the big questions I wanted to talk to you about today was uh, was around long term care. And, and I guess in, in my view, I've had, um, you know, grandparents and great grandparents and things like that that have gone to a nursing home. Um, my grandma had dementia before she passed, uh, you know, so going through some of those things that may be a little bit different than uh, hospice. But 
when you think of long-term care and the the costs that come with that, uh, long-term care costs continue to rise at you know five to eight percent per year. You know, with yep. home care now being home care is the fastest growing segment in the long-term care system. You know, how do you feel like families should prepare for this financially when when healthcare is creating a greater longevity for people? Uh, but then to go back to your point, you know, if you're in there too long, you know, you don't want to raise red flags and, and all of a sudden clinics and, uh, you know, centers are are being dinged for it. You know, healthcare in general is creating more longevity, right? And right. so people are going right. to be, they're going to be living longer, which is great. Uh, but a very, you know, eventually their body deteriorates, they need, you know, some additional care. You know, how do you feel like families should prepare financially you know, when healthcare is creating this longevity and, and people are needing more long-term care? Well, they are, they're supposed to save up their whole life for a nest egg and a retirement. And there is such a thing nowadays that you can help buy long-term care insurance. When you're in your 50s, you can buy long-term care insurance and that would help pay for assisted living or for providing an aid in the home. And I encourage people to look into that. I think nowadays with people easily living longer that's very um, much needed but the truth is actually some of the companies that provided that service have gone bankrupt because mm-hmm. uh, it's not becoming profitable for them as a business so it's it's harder and harder to get those kinds of policies um, I know myself I've been a physician for 15 years I've had about a dozen or so patients that have lived over a hundred wow. and when you think about it, these people have been collecting social security since they were 65. So they're collecting for over 50 years and well, over 40 years, sometimes over 50, but the vast majority of those people um, did not work for 50 years. So they did not contribute into the system for, for 50 years. So the system is, is financially unviable, not, not viable. And, um, that became very apparent to me when I did my internship in Massachusetts, when I recognized that, you know, half the people in the hospital were people on disability that never worked. And basically our tax dollars are paying for them. Mm-hmm. And you realize very quickly that a quarter of the population is always in school. A quarter of the population is, is probably retiring. So half of the population that is working is basically providing the entire tax base for the entire country. Mm-hmm. And and right now there's a called silver tsunami. There's 10,000 people a day turning 65. And that's why there's a tremendous crunch in the healthcare system to, to provide healthcare for the elderly people because there's there's such a need for it. But the, the workforce is actually really not there. And there's a, a big push, big push of, of these elderly people as, as they get into retirement. A lot of them get on these Medicare Advantage plans. And in the country, I believe there's four or five Medicare Advantage plans. These Medicare Advantage plans are owned by insurance companies, and they've all created their own verticals where they provide their own um, hospital sometimes, their own physician groups, and they try to just keep the patients in their own verticals. And the Medicare Advantage plans seem to be more attractive to people because it's it's more cost effective than, say, maybe traditional Medicare. But what you don't realize is you end up being trapped into this narrow vertical. And when you get ill, 
your options are going to be very limited as to what services you get because you're trapped in this Medicare Advantage um, vertical. And a lot of the physicians that I've talked to, some who are actually even sell insurance nowadays, um, they don't recommend people sign up for the Medicare Advantage. And there's a a lot of articles, and it's been it's been documented that all five of these Medicare Advantage insurance companies have overbilled the Medicare system and have taken advantage of of having these Medicare Advantage plans. And it's gotten to the point where the ultimate bully in the room is the government. And it's only the government that has enough weight to tackle these ginormous medical insurance entities because the physicians don't have the power. And physicians, the way the system is designed, we're too splintered to get together to do anything. So ultimately, the government has to get together and, and address this issue of Medicare Advantage. But I don't think it's ever going to get done because it's not a popular topic politically. You never hear about these politicians who are running for president talking about the details of the Medicare Advantage or, or Medicare plan. They just talk about the healthcare system, but they don't they don't they don't hone in on the dysfunction of the healthcare system and how the insurance companies have siphoned up so much of of the resources. And, um, you know, physicians' incomes is only 7% of the U.S. healthcare economy. So the physicians do not take a lot of the money in the healthcare system. It's actually a very, very small percentage. And um, the way the healthcare system is going, you know, right now, I, would, I think around 70% of doctors would not recommend it to their children or other people. And going forward, it's, it's going to be a shortage. It's going to be a big problem. Yeah, and that's that's just unfortunate to hear that that that's it's breeding that type of um, that thought process, right? You know, I, I feel like back in the day, you know, and I say that you know, like the '40s and the '50s, if if you were a physician and your kids were, you know, smart and, and adept and they were they worked hard, you would tell them, "Hey, you should become a, a doctor as well." Uh, and then that generate, you know, there's probably thousands of stories out there of, you know, multi-generational doctors and right. because of the, the healthcare system now, and, and you really hit on it, the Medicare system, the, the health insurance system, um, making it harder for physicians to really do the one-on-one -on -one care, you know, that it was designed to do it, it, it makes it really tough. And so I, I wanted to ask you the, the Medicare question, just because I know a little bit about it. Um, you know, obviously being a former financial advisor, long-term care was something that I sold. Uh, so very familiar with how, how that all works. Um, but for, for hearing it from a physician on the Medicare side of things and the challenges that you guys face was really eye-opening for me. Cause you know, when I was a financial advisor, I always told people, Hey, don't rely on, you know, Medicare don't rely on, uh, what the government's willing to pay for you because they're not going to stick you in a nice place. Right. You know, you said it with, right. those, with those five pillars, um, you know, whatever they're willing to pay for you know, they might stick you in a facility with white walls and a, you know, you're going to have a neighbor in the bed right next to you. It's, it's not going to be like the, uh, the fancy places that you see on TV. And so I always told my clients, you know, there's, don't rely on that to be your, your source of, uh, of, uh, payment, right. When it comes to that type of care, you got to create those things on your own. And so really I always narrowed it down to three ways, right. There was, uh, number one, create passive or guaranteed income sources that can that can carry that cost through the duration of their retirement and through the duration of their lives. Uh, number two, well, you said it, 
leverage long-term care insurance that you know a lot of times has inflation growth option built into it that that's going to go up as, as the cost of care and the cost of inflation rises you have that type of uh, policy built in. And then even now today, and this probably wasn't something I don't think that was available even, let's say 20 years ago when you were really diving into things in 2003 was there are some types of life insurance policies, you know, that allow you to borrow against the policy or withdraw benefits early, you know, in certain cases to help pay for long-term care. Uh, and then you can use that remaining balance, you know, that gets paid out when you pass away. But being able to have those three sources, you know, guaranteed income sources like a social security, or you've created passive wealth, you know, throughout your life, long-term care and some types of, of life insurance. I think if you can, you know, create those on your own and, and be able to pay for care that you need, because, you know, what's the statistic these days, like 72% of people are going to need some level of long-term care at some point in their lives. Uh, because it's not like a hundred years ago where you, you kind of went down the, down the path and, and got near the end of your life. And then your kids and your grandkids would just take care of you. Right. Um, right. And that's just not the case anymore. And, and you've seen that more than anyone, um, especially seeing, you know, centenarians. That's pretty cool that you've seen that many, yeah. but um, to know that life is lasting much longer uh, and right. financially you have to be prepared for it. You can't just kind of go, uh, go on a whim and, and, you know, go in blindly to something like that knowing that, I mean, you know, three out of four chance that you're that you're going to end up needing care, and, and you got to be prepared for that financially. So, I'm I'm grateful that you were able to 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 tell the one side of it that I didn't know about because obviously I I always told clients you know prepare for it yourself um, because you've seen the people who have not right, and you've seen the people who have just relied on the Medicare system and they get put into a into a pillar or a column that that maybe wasn't in their best interest or. Uh, right. wasn't what they were expecting, you know, for their final six months of life. Uh, and so you've, you've opened my eyes a little bit to that. And so I appreciate that. I, I wanted to just make a couple other points. I, I wanted to mention, if you don't mind, yeah, um, go ahead. everybody's, heard, everybody's always heard of the golden rule. The golden rule is to treat others as the way you want to be treated. The golden rule in medicine is he who holds the gold makes the rule. <laughs> and mm. that basically is, is basically all the rules in healthcare are, are made by Medicare and the insurance companies because ultimately they're, they are the payers. Uh, if, if physicians are brave and smart enough to be able to get out of the insurance-based system, and that's what the DPC movement is, the direct primary care, the physicians that move out of the um, insurance-based system um, and they do a cash-based practice, they're able to actually thrive a lot better. But um, so long as you're in the insurance-based system, you have to play all these games that the insurance companies, including the government, uh, ultimately puts you through. One of the physicians I worked with uh, in Michigan, he was actually a pharmacist before he became a physician. While he was a physician, he decided to open up an urgent care. And I remember he showed me his reimbursement. He had seen a patient. He had spent 25 minutes. It was a moderate complexity visit and the patient was on Medicaid and state Medicaid reimbursed them all of 25 cents for that 20 minute visit. Wow. The, the stamp on the envelope was more than the reimbursement for the visit. And that was just scary to me. Imagine you spend 25 minutes, you've, you've spent all this money in building a facility and your reimbursement is 25 cents. 
you can work an eight hour a day and maybe maybe be able to afford a happy meal for your kid. That was that was eight years ago. Today you couldn't even afford a ha- happy meal for your kid. So the so it's it's a very dysfunctional system. No nobody can function on twenty five cents of reimbursement for twenty five minutes of time. I mean your overhead on your electricity and your and your thing is going to be more than that. So. This is something physicians, unfortunately, need to be aware of. And, and no, nowhere do they educate you on this. Uh, unfortunately, you kind of have to learn things the hard way yourself. For sure. We had a we had a guest here on the show uh, a little while back that, that has gotten more into that cash-based system, just got tired of the, uh, the health insurance industry. What he does in regenerative medicine is a little bit, it's obviously more cost-effective than, a, than a, let's say, a full orthopedic surgery. What types of industry, or I don't, I don't want to call them industries, but what types of um, care or fields within medicine do you think really can't do cash based just simply because the cost is so high that no, everyone you have to rely on your insurance? Uh, people, you know, this type of physician. Well, you know, I mean, ultimately, I mean, um, you know, you're going to be hard pressed finding a neurosurgeon that's out of the insurance-based system because mm-hmm. there's such a shortage of neurosurgeons. They're pretty much our employees of these health systems. Um, I mean, myself, um, I I had a hysterectomy, and this was a 20-minute procedure in the hospital. And for that 20-minute procedure, um, my bill was $48,000. I mean, it's crazy. Wow. And the insurance reimbursed forty six thousand, so the remaining two thousand was was my responsibility. But this was, this was a twenty minute procedure. This was something that I know the surgeon could do in their sleep. And ultimately, of that forty eight thousand dollar bill, I'm sure the physician himself didn't get even a thousand dollars. All that money just went to the hospital, and it's just you know the hospitals are like mafias, and it's just it's a very it's a very uneven system and um, the hospitals get reimbursed at a higher rate than if a physician was to open up their own office, which makes it very difficult. Like I was explaining to you, the physician that tried to open up an urgent care, you, you can't make things work on 25 cents for 25 minutes. No. So it's the, the system is designed to make it very difficult, if not impossible for a physician to survive. If to survive is, is you got to do a, a cash-based practice, but you know, you, you can't do that in certain specialties. So I mean, you're not, you're never going to see a pathologist for cash. You're never going to see a radiologist for cash or an anesthesiologist. So those, those specialists are hospital based and they're trapped in, in the system as a primary care physician. Um, I could open up my own cash-based practice and I live in a, in a nice pocket of Detroit. And I've even asked online how many people would be willing to pay cash for a practice? And I had a very small um, interest gauge in that. You know, most people want their insurance to pay for it. So it's it's a very difficult niche to break into. Do you think that's been bred from the health insurance companies just gaining more power? Right. Think of you know the 1950s. It was probably, you know, health insurance was still around back then, I presume, but like, I feel like it was probably there's probably a lot more cash based um, fields within healthcare now because health insurance has become so powerful because they've created that golden rule that you just talked about. Doctors don't really have a choice, and and so the 
the environment around them has just, you know, for a hysterectomy to cost $48,000 and 46 is covered by insurance. Like, I mean, they got, they have 90% of the power there uh, where, yeah. you know, let's say 50 years ago, a hysterectomy might, might only cost two, the, that $2,000 difference total. And so somebody maybe could have saved up and, and paid cash and not had to rely on their health insurance and, you know, file the claim and, you know, potentially increase rate. You know, I, I just feel like that's um, the more and more physicians I talk to, the more I realize that that the health insurance industry has now overtaken the healthcare industry, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. It, it's they're They're the 800 pound gorilla. And the only person that could take them down, like I said, is the government. But the government's not going to talk, touch it because it's not popular. Even though everybody, probably more Americans can get united on that one issue than any other issue out there. Um, the government's not going to touch it because it's not popular. Um, they're private companies and, and this is America. It's all about capitalism. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Rafi, I, I appreciate you taking some time. I know you were, you're heading into work and uh, I want to let you get back to it, but uh, this has been enlightening. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate all that you shared. Uh, anything before you go that, that you want to throw out there uh, that, that you want to drive home and, and is most important to you? Uh, thank you, Nate. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Um, I appreciate you giving me uh, um, an opportunity to get on a soapbox. Um, you know, I, th I think ultimately um, more physicians, unfortunately, got to take charge of their own careers. And I think to be successful, you got to create a niche for yourself outside of this insurance-based system. Um but, you know, I, I hope the public is, is more aware of the insurance monopolies that's going on or oligopolies. And um, I, I hope that this is an issue that is brought up politically, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. It's a, it's a major issue. It's, it's the reason why healthcare is a tapeworm of the U.S. economy. It has nothing to do with the doctors. It has nothing to do with the nurses. It has to do with the insurance companies. And if the U.S. has any chance of keeping the healthcare costs at bay, they need to tackle these insurance companies and the oligopolies that they've created. Uh, whether or not that happens, who knows? I would not hold my breath, but that's that's the big issue. Awesome. Well, again, appreciate you sharing all that you did today. This was awesome. Uh, wishing you all the best. You're going to continue to grow. You're going to continue to lead. I'm excited to see where you end up. Thank you, Nate. Have a good day. I appreciate the chance. Yep. See ya. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. As we wrap up today's episode, I want to talk about the second opinion. As most of our listeners are physicians, you guys know the importance of having another medical professional's insight for a patient's treatment plan. But have you ever considered having a second opinion on your financial plan? Or have you simply trusted your financial advisor that they've already leveraged every strategy that your family needs to be 100% on track to meet your financial goals. That's why for my Doctors and Dollars listeners, each Wednesday, I block off three time slots, an hour each, to provide a free second opinion of their financial plan. During this hour, we'll reevaluate your financial goals and your risk tolerance, we'll ensure tax mitigation strategies are in place, and ultimately give you confidence with your financial outlook, because that is what drives a happy home a happy marriage, and peace of mind. These three spots each Wednesday do fill up fast. 
send me an email at nate at grandvision.co or head over to www.grandvision.co backslash second opinion to fill out a quick form about you and schedule a time for us to meet. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope the rest of your week is abundant. Cheers.